balls and strike. And here is pitch number two. With one blast of his bat. They were riding an open automobile when the shots were fired. Nervous, you can yell fire in a crowded theater if you're on stage, but don't do it off stage. The theater is make-believe, that's where it's at. I seem somehow to recognize it. I don't mean I know who was speaking. It was the tone I recognized, the touching quality of some half-remembered and tender event, even through the static. Welcome to Don DeLillo Should Win the Nobel Prize. I'm Jeff Sievers. And I'm Mike Strait. The idea of our show is in the title. It's a sort of thesis statement for our show, although um, as will maybe come up along the way, we are somewhat skeptical of the Nobel Prize being the uh, primary way of valuing uh, any uh, literary achievement. And certainly uh, with, that's the case with DeLillo. We've done the math, and our combined reading experience of Don DeLillo is more than 40 years, which uh, certainly counts for something, at least we think so. Uh, we've been reading, thinking about DeLillo, and living in DeLillo's world for uh, that combined amount of time. This podcast emerges from uh, that time enjoying his work. Um, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Jeff Sievers. Uh, I teach for a living at the University of British Columbia. Um, I've written some about Don DeLillo, not a lot. Um, and uh, we thought we'd share some of our uh, first experiences encountering DeLillo here as we get started. I um, first read DeLillo as uh, I read him, uh, read his White Noise in 1995 when I was entering my last year or so of college. Um, and uh, I remember finding the book uh, stunningly funny, uh, as so many people have, and but also developing a sense as I read more DeLillo over the next two years or so, um, at, in the interval between that and when Underworld came out, uh, I read Mao 2, Great Jones Street, maybe one or two others. I remember just experiencing DeLillo as someone who kind of renewed my sense of what a novel could be and do, uh, whether the scope was, you know, a few hundred pages or then when Underworld appeared, you know, a much bigger uh, canvas. Um, and um, that's what I bring to the this uh, podcast. Mike? I wrote my uh, master's thesis on Don DeLillo a few years ago under the supervision of a very supportive uh, professor or two. And... Uh, two very supportive professors, let's put it that way. Uh, I first encountered DeLillo's work in 2010 with the first novel being Endzone, uh, for which I had admittedly low expectations when I learned it was a novel about football. Little did I know uh, really what was to follow when I cracked open the first page. Ever since then, I've been trying to get deeper to an understanding of, of what this author really, really provides. And I feel like I'm 
uh, forever on the way. I don't think that there will ever really be an ultimate understanding considering the complexity and the, yeah, the, the richness of, of this man's work. And maybe in those, uh, as we go along with our episodes, we'll mention that a lot of these books, it's the third, fourth, fifth time that we've uh, cracked open those pages. Absolutely. And, and that will um, uh, turn up in these, uh, in this podcast. We think of this podcast as something uh, for everyone uh, from a long-term readers and fans of DeLillo, a seasoned scholar of DeLillo, but also first-time readers of the books, uh, fans of the books, students encountering DeLillo in a class uh, for the first time and trying to figure him out. Um, it's a show where we will get out an urge in us that has been a long time in the making and that comes out of our own private conversations that we're uh, just now uh, putting down on tape in this way. Um, we're doing this at a time when the DeLillo wave is sort of cresting. Uh, there's lots of current and upcoming film and TV adaptations. There's publication of his um, novels, uh, certain decades of his novels in Library of America editions, a kind of rare honor for a living writer, especially. And uh, we, of course, uh, think all this is uh, merited interest and praise. And uh, we're going to add uh, a sizable amount of our own uh, praise to it. <laughs> Absolutely. It'll be hard not to uh, to sound like fanboys here and there. The <laughs> uh, definite, definite fanboy streak yeah, in the podcast. Uh, yeah. Don DeLillo should win the Nobel Prize. That's uh, right. In this show, we aim to be not only fanboys, but we also uh, aim to be comprehensive uh, throughout the career. Uh, we consider this as a venue uh, for a series of extremely deep dives. Uh, Delillo is a, is a versatile writer, and we, Jeff and I look forward to investigating uh, all of the different uh, styles, voices, characters, uh, and missions that, that Delillo brings to the table. And we'll be taking on definitely each of the novels one at a time and uh, perhaps episodes on plays, short stories, essays, as well as we go along. Um, just a final word about the title of the show. Uh, in about two weeks, less than that, the 2023 Nobel Prize winner will be announced. Um, I have, uh, for the first time this year, put $10 on that writer being <laughs> Don DeLillo on a uh, British Columbia gambling site, uh, which you, you, you can do as well, mm -hmm. you know, wherever you are, I think. And if Don DeLillo wins, we will, um, of course, uh, happily change the title of the show. Don DeLillo just won the Nobel Prize. D-D-J-W-T-N-P. That's right. Yep. But for now, we're D-D-S-W-T-N-P. Whatever happens, we're, we're going to continue with this show. Of course. Uh, for, at this rate, a couple of years, probably, at least. <laughs> Uh, we've got a lot of work to do, but uh, here's our first episode on Americana. So Americana. <laughs> um, it's a showstopper of a first novel. It most definitely is. Most of the reviews that I've seen that you sent me that uh, aren't completely uh, numb skull <laughs> in in their uh they recognize that yeah. a new talent is exactly on the they're yeah. all like uh, yeah pretty pretty blown away um joyce carol oates who's on the back uh 
she has a she had a ringing review. Yeah, and um, it's true. Nearly every sentence of America rings true. There's not really a dull a dull sentence that doesn't work within. Well, the- that's the Nelson Algren line in Rolling. I think it's in Rolling Stone. Not a dull. There's not a dull or. Not a dull line in it. I forget what uh, the actual adjectives are, but it's interesting. Exactly. That yeah. I was immediately going to start to say the first sentence, dull and lurid is the uh, the first thing. But I noticed that you said when reading this, nearly every sentence of America. Oh, true. America. Well, but <laughs> you're, I, right, the, yeah. you're supposed to make the, the right. sort of mistake, right? Because That's true. The, he's very interested in, um, you know, eventually way much further into the career, he talks about, the raw, the words raw sprawl on like the last page or so of Underworld and how one contains the other. And there's this immediate sense of doubling, right? Between America, Americana, mm-hmm. um, it, when the things are meant to be, the entities uh, invoked are opposed in some way. Absolutely. Artificial, you know, authentic and artificial or possibly authentic, I guess. So my mistake was a happy accident. It was, it was an accident that was supposed to happen. (laughs) That's right. The happy accident. Yeah. (laughs) In many ways. Yeah. So apparently he wrote it in five years, essentially four years. He, he says started in 66 and published in 71. So, Mm -hmm. uh, I only, learned recently about the magenta the magenta yeah uh, in the, in book, the, the magenta phase, copy right. yeah what, what, what we should read that sentence i think just so that, uh it's near the end of the we're talking about notes toward a definitive meditation yeah he says this in it's subtext to um diminishing existence this is the uh heading there right most of this is gone and he's talking about the theme of diminishing existence it still exists of course in the original hulking manuscript which has come to be known as the magenta version (laughs) after the color of the binder the version as published has has come to be called the book or the novel or the published version version and all that this whole essay is in is put in the third person even though it's by DeLillo. It's called Notes Toward a Definitive Meditation by Someone Else on the Novel Americana from 1972. And I think it, it says that Endzone had already been published by this point, right. um, which is an amazing fact in itself. We'll have to get to the right. fact that he publishes one. <laughs> I mean, it, it probably had worked on Endzone in some way before. Um, but it also kind of published. It also goes to. Sh- to show that this was cooking for a while for him. It was a real, there was a lot of pressure behind this. He, he over, he overdid it. Uh, I think that the version that we have is, is already, it's, it's not too big. It's not too small, but it's, it's, it's huge. There's a, yeah, there's a huge, yeah, yeah. There, there's an ambition. Yes. There's a the huge fences. ambition. Yeah. And when you think of this magenta version, yeah. 600 plus it, pages, uh, right. he he says, yeah, he says this is the version that <laughs> I had re- I'd heard before in an interview. He described the manuscript as higher than his radio right. in, on his kitchen table. And he says that later. But it does give the sense that he cut out a ton. Uh, like about half. Hundred, yeah, hundreds of pages. Um, and then cut it again as a sort of mature man, <laughs> I guess, in uh, 1989. Um but the, I think that those cuts amount to something like 10 or 15 pages or something like that. That right. is mostly kind of cutting out what 
you know, uh, seems like obvious excess and probably seemed excess to him. I haven't looked at those versions. It'd know, be interesting in to see if comparison. Uh, That'd be a meticulous task. <laughs> but it's also an interesting. Ta- it is an interesting task because. I mean, Delillo was uh, in his 30s when this was published, as far as I understand. But 34? 34. I think, yeah. Uh, but One, in some 36. ways, this, is, this isn't exactly, this isn't, I was going to say this is his juvenilia, but it really isn't, because he had, he had other short stories. He had yeah. other work that, this was the, I think the was earliest the short story was 60, even. I think it, uh, Epoch, the literary journal that the essay is in, had been, you know, mentions publishing him in 1960, which strikes right. me as it's appropriate to his great young novelist or great young writer age at the time. I guess he's 23, mm-hmm. uh, 24 in, in 1960. But, um, you know, this is a kind of late start in a sense with, if you compare it to Pynchon coming along with V and, 1963, which inevitably they're going to be pinching to low comparisons and so on. But, mm-hmm. um, but this is uh, the real definitive statement. This is kind of the break. The way that I would look at this is uh, he probably saw this as a, as a true breakthrough of the career. This is the, yeah. this is the first big novel which started the, the string. The, the well, kind of yeah. one after the other of... Uh, yeah. All the, all the consistent work. I mean, we'll have a chance to talk about it. I was thinking about how is there, you know, the end zone, great chance are just much shorter. And I wonder if there's a kind of after effect of, you know, inevitably he read or knew of those reviews and as self-conscious as the book is about its plotlessness to be called plotless and, and so on. I wonder if it had, had an effect. And then, you know, I mean, we're essentially making this comparison to implicitly to underworld mm-hmm. many years later, where, which seems to be a kind of twin <laughs> book in terms of the, here's this, the scope that he wanted really realized in, in so many different ways. Right. But anyway, no, you're hundred yeah. percent right. I think that there's more than a little bit of, of David Bell in, in Nick Shea and uh, vice versa. I think yeah. that there's, in, in terms of the subject, in terms of the scope, but also in terms of just just the character and the concern, the love for older women <laughs> <laughs> and is for it, art, for so, artistic, yes, women. for art, Sullivan right. and, and Clara um, Sachs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. To me, the throughout all of all of Delillo, there's such a, a focus and fascination with just the artist. Yeah. No matter what that metier might be. Um, I mean, David Bell claims to be a filmmaker, but he's actually a novelist, right? Yeah. He's actually, he's actually writing a Yeah, on. there is that kind of displacement <laughs> yeah. often, right? Yeah, yeah he's... Yeah, the, like the performance artists of the letter work, there, there, there's, some, there's nothing straightforward about, like, choice of medium. Exactly. Or something like that. And I think with yeah. Americana, we have a kind of a smorgasbord of different life callings in terms of the characters. There's Bran, mm-hmm. the novelist. There's Pike, the... Uh, uh, Discovery Channel <laughs> kind of gladiator. Yeah, 20, <laughs> 20 years early or something yeah. like that, too. Uh, yeah, what an what a interesting guy among many interesting guys. Yeah, it, to, to think of his choosing, especially the people that go into the camper, which, it, like, it, it's, um, you know, that we're not talking an RV uh, of giant proportions here. The right. notion that they kind of, with some stays in motel rooms. Right. So, like live in that camper 
for intimate circumstances. Yeah, uh, just seems uh, strange. We, I don't know if we ever really find out, like you know, how long it and wide it is, or something like that. We don't. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of underdeveloped that actual scene, that actual set. Yeah, but it's David left... in the front seat, sing, uh, playing the radio or right. being in charge of the radio. And well, uh, as we yeah. find out at the end, uh, Sullivan yeah. and Brand have been right. On the sly. So uh, too much intimacy <laughs> there, right? Yeah. And it started like, back in Maine with David in the room. <laughs> David in the room. Oh, exactly. my God. Yeah. It's really funny. Yeah. And uh, I think that really what makes this this book stand out so strongly is just the the humor, the, the focus on the humor, but also the, the style of the humor and how if you, if you like, it's not... There's a few cheap thrills, but also it's, it's to me a complicated laughter in that oh, yeah. you are, I mean, what's the quote? Only in America is, is violence oh, yeah. funny. Or... This is the only country with funny violence. Well, which is uh, a different, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we're not, well, anyway, lots of different kinds of laughter. I was at the, should we read the first page or so? Let's do to, it. Yeah, let's do that uh, to get some of this style. And, um, you know, DeLillo's ambition and confidence that you were invoking earlier is, you know, it's in the book. It's David Bell's, well, arrogance, I think we'd say, but they're, they're sort of, you know, it's a matter of degree. There's nothing, there's nothing humble about this attempt at a novel and there's nothing humble about any of the writing because it's through the voice of this guy egomaniac um, egomaniac his, yeah, e- his the, ego moments. the narcissist of, well uh, the beautiful blue-eyed boy or, or as he's called um here i'll read the first paragraph and take it away take it from there then we came to the end of another dull and lurid year lights were strung across the front of every shop men selling chestnuts wheeled their smoky carts in the evenings the crowds were immense and traffic built to a tidal roar the Santas of Fifth Avenue rang their little bells with an odd, sad delicacy, as if sprinkling salt on some brutally spoiled piece of meat. Music came from all the stores and jingles, chants and hosannas, and from the Salvation Army bands came the martial trumpet lament of ancient Christian legions. It was a strange sound to hear in that time and place, the smack of cymbals and high-collared drums, a suggestion that children were being scolded for a bottomless sin and it seemed to annoy people. But the girls were lovely and undismayed, shopping in every mad store, striding through those magnetic twilights like drum majorettes, tall and pink, bright packages cradled to their tender breasts. The blind man's German shepherd slept through it all. Finally, we got to Quincy's place. His wife opened the door. I introduced her to my date, B.G. Haynes, and then began counting the people in the room. As I counted... I was distantly aware that Quincy's wife and I were talking about India. Counting the house was a habit of mine. The question of how many of how many people were present in a particular place seemed important to me, perhaps because the recurring news of airline disasters and military engagements always stressed the number of dead and missing. Such exactness is a tickle of electricity to the numbed brain. The next most important thing to find out was the degree of hostility. This was relatively simple. All you had to do was look at the people people who were looking at you as you entered. One long glance was usually enough to give you a fair reading. There were 31 people in the living room. Roughly three out of four were hostile. <laughs> so, so what are we getting in the first 
The first two paragraphs here. Yeah. I, f- I feel like well, we're getting a lot. I mean, even just the first word, then we came to the end, then, you know, starting, I mean, uh, in media race for the sort of in narratological mm-hmm. <laughs> terms, but it's, but there's, um, it's not like we're in an action scene or something. It speaks to the fact that we're going to get a book where sequence and time and growth don't mean anything or aren't, um, you know, just aren't productive in, in some way. And it, it strikes me that he, you know, he essentially replays the party scene, this first party scene in the old Holly sections of, of part two mm-hmm. in a way that you almost think it, there is a deep connection, you know, to what Sullivan does or what he does, how Sullivan kind of captures the role of, of his, uh, mother but it's also just meant to be going back you know seen as going backwards and repetition i think you know and, and then we came to the end is sort of somehow contains uh, quite a bit of that you know even just in the first phrase i agree uh the chronology is also you know kind of according to the whim of of the narrator like in there's especially in part two the uh Old Holly part. There's a lot of kind of jumping back and forth. The mother's alive and one. Yeah, dead college before high school. Exactly. Sort of, I, I noticed. And yeah. um, it's also just an interesting way to introduce banality, to introduce this kind of uh, grimy, humdrum subject that the narrator has fascination with throughout the whole, throughout the whole book. Yeah. And apparently the, the magenta version has a lot lot more. (laughs) He says, I cut out all this stuff about boredom. Exactly. To me, you know, strikes me as an alert to David Foster Wallace fans (laughs) thinking that, you know, the pale King was the first attempt to write a book about boredom. But uh, yeah. And there's also shades shades of Beckett in there as well. It's also interesting that, the actual what I call this the outer frame of the book, and that is the scene of David Bell in the current age, whatever that is, mm. nineteen ninety nine. We think uh, yeah. on an island, the magnetism of an impending century, or something like that. It's, right? it's nineteen ninety nine. Yeah. It, so instead of the end of another dull and lurid year, we're at the end of another dull and lurid century. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. Well. So, it, yeah. Yeah. And a decade too, I think, because. You know, I think it's hard to exactly date it, but we're probably in December of 69 here. And then most of the book takes place in 70, which, um, uh, you know, when he says Vietnam was sort of five mm-hmm. years started or started in earnest five years ago. So it makes rough sense, although it's kind of, I think, also importantly, not named, not counted on the calendar as he, you know, Absolutely. Uh, but, it, but it, you know, 69, given what happened in the, the 60s would have struck uh, him as, you know, an important kind of um, another kind of end, you know, and he's of course building the centrist interest in uh, ends and, and ending. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Well, he, he kind of, <laughs> the, the whole book is kind of him working himself uh, out of all of his associations that he had in his life simultaneously as he's working through a lot of the past that uh, he hasn't been able to, to process. I guess we'll get... That's part three, essentially, right? Where 
we see yeah the film the film in part it, its main parts yeah if if I may I guess if I were to give subtitles to the four parts the first part would be the office mm-hmm. and there's there's there's, <laughs> there's certainly uh, a lot that has been or done Mad Men we might call it. <laughs> okay, Mad Men but even you know TV the shows the yeah. show of the office like just kind yeah, of yeah well that's like there's thinking. just yeah, so yeah. much yeah. material of the dysfunctional sociological yeah. experiment that is uh, a modern a yeah. modern office there's yeah. it's, it's just it's just hilarious and um so artificial there's so much artifice there that can be exploited by by the keen eye the the second part would be uh old holly it'd be yeah. the, the the reminiscence yeah. the the intimate view of david bell's perspective on what it was like growing up we get some important I think as, as DeLillo says in the definitive notes, there's an, there's a beginning an ending and two middles, right? Yeah. That's appropriate to a kind of sequence. That's the right whack or something like that. But it's interesting because the two middles are in some ways mirror images of each other in, in my reading of it, you have Mm. the David Bell direct narration. You have the David Bell, uh, planting himself in the action in part two, but part three you have him making the film and the yeah. film is in my books, kind of him probably quite unconsciously more unconsciously than not working through a lot of these episodes. He has shades and echoes of his father's speech of Mary and Arendella. There's uh, his, his mother, Dr. Weber, Weber, however you want to pronounce that. Well, just Weber. Weber. <laughs> Dr. Vader. I mean, he's such the, he's this is the villain of the, of the book. This yeah. is America, after all, I suppose. Right, but, um, yeah. yeah. Part four is the uh, David Bell solo mission. His, right, um, going off, off the, well, to the reservation or toward the reservation um, and, and going solo and Clevenger and everything. I was thinking, as you were talking about the two middles... You know, the other thing that happens, well, throughout parts one and two, but we see David as moviegoer and then, you know, and then part, the, the film part is, part three is clearly about making a film and, mm-hmm. I, and he's, he's processing that material as his own past, his own psychology or unconscious, uh, too, with that sort of often in these, yeah, I mean, we could, probably spend a lot of time listing the, the various, you know, connections to Kurosawa and Bergman and so Well, there's his, his own Berlin. hilarious description of his work. I don't know if, uh, I can, but do, do yeah, you, well, I think he's talking, I think yeah. he's talking to, uh, it's either Brand or Glenn Yost. Uh, he's basically delineating his, uh, his work. Uh, aesthetic and it's it's hilarious just based on how how pretentious it is <laughs> um not to i don't want to leave that first paragraph behind so easily i mean I, I guess what do you make of this being not just the end of the year but but christmas uh right the this moment of uh renewal i mean when the when the the uh, or alleged renewal as if sprinkling salt on some brutally spoiled piece of meat I think is just one of the first phrases where I kind of understand um, this right. is a uh, you know what the kind of idiom of the book is going to be in a new way, and that's the um, that's a description of bells uh, rang the 
the Sanchez of Fifth Avenue rang their little bells with an odd, sad delicacy. I guess, you know, inevitably we, we think of this kind of, um, this is a first stage in the book, leaving behind Christianity or leaving behind the, the, um, saving force of, of Christianity to put it very broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. um, and that's, you know, all over <laughs> this beginning, but, um, also noticeably, I thought the, what the first kind of mis- mention of Christian that we have is, um, the Salvation Army bands, uh, providing the martial trumpet lament of ancient Christian legions. So Christianity is already, uh, an imperial militaristic, uh, force, right? Mm-hmm. Um, before it has a chance to establish itself as religious, uh, in mm-hmm. a way. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. I think that, uh, alongside that, you have just, uh, kind of an, an op- there's a banality, there's a, there's a dreariness, but there's also a kind of an, o- an overwhelm. Uh, there's a, there's a funny contrast between the, um, the sound of the music, which is, uh, a suggestion that children were being scolded for a bottomless sin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it seemed to annoy people. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. you have just, a uh, a strange irony in that you you have both um, both the petty and the the dire uh, simultaneously in in these little little Christmas scenes. I think it also sets up the general tone for all of Part One, which is um, this this kind of. Uh, I want to say laziness, but also this kind of carefree attitude of, okay, we can all drink a lot now. We can kind of screw around more like this is, we can basically take it, take it easier and we can indulge in our, I guess, bottomless sins more more than we (laughs) typically would. It seems like not much work is being done in the office at all. And I think that that generally is the case year round, but this this Christmas time, uh, it seems like it, it gives it's giving license to pretty much everyone to yeah uh, yeah to be a little bit more. Well, it, 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 and it is overall as a whole. The book is you know to put it in banal terms, maybe about quitting a job. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, uh, as he says near the end, sort of like a, you know, put me in a they'll put me in a file drawer uh, marked you know to coming back from limbo or, or something like that. He's, he's, um, you know, there, there's a self, uh, not just, you know, you could say, well, some of these bottomless sins that you're talking about alcoholism and so on would be seen as, as slowly self-destructive, but there's a kind of urge toward the, you know, in the, uh, the act that will subvert the life, you know, that the, the life is too, um, um, cushy but not in a kind of sense right if you would see this as a sort of like purgation or confession of sin where he you know with a possible kind of redemption through reaching bottom there's none of that you no know, as a kind of potential arc or yeah there's like no that. there's no like finger wagging at all of this licentiousness in fact it's more of a i pick up i pick up a real it seems like a lot of them are having a pretty good time, but uh, David Bell in particular, and we, we get this in the second paragraph that you read out 
there's just a deep-seated uh, anxiety. There's a deep-seated dread. And there is, uh, I would say, a real undercurrent of, of just nihilistic thought and tendency. Yeah. Which, but, yeah. Go, go on. No, I was going to say, what struck me as I was reading it is that, you know, I had remembered counting the house as this, you know, it's the second paragraph is this characteristic David Bell gesture. But it, there, there's also a kind of, um, what is the line? The number of dead um, recurring news of airline disasters and military engagements always stress the number of dead and missing. Such exactness is a tickle of electricity to the numb brain. The body count as, you know, and I think there's a hit, a, um, this literary critic, Jim Dawes talks about the, the creation of our idea of the body count, I think in the civil war era that we, you know, the immediate thing we do when hearing about a battle or reading a news account, how serious disaster is, is how many dead, you know, and it, this is true of mass shootings and so on. And what's great about what he registers here is it's the number you would think the body count would be indicative of a numbness to the disastrous mm-hmm. events. And yet he, Delillo is identifying, no, there's something, <laughs> and this is like, this is pure Delillo. This is what he does. Absolutely. He says, no, there's actually, we want the number because that's the, that's the unnumbing. That's the tickle of electricity. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and maybe we'll talk later about these kind of passages about numbers and counting. And David David's is a numbers man. To count that I think are just, um, uh, Incredible, and, and in a way, you know, far in the future at this point is Ratner's star, where he eventually gets really down into the mm-hmm. question of what is a number and, Very <laughs> and so on. But Very true. there's just this kind of sense that, um, yeah, that uh, human, you know, body count itself is there's such a callousness in um, it is the ultimate conversion of person into. <laughs> number dehumanizing yeah, yeah and yet david here uh is it's funny because this is a this is a humanizing moment the counting up of the hostiles in the room it's it's anti it's antisocial yeah. behavior and yet in in my perspective uh this type of it's not quirkiness but it's a quirk this type of quirk and, and david bell is full of them delilo characters are just full of them uh, they're endearing. They're endearing. Yeah. They're, they're, they're extremely Because endearing. they're sort of novel notions that nonetheless you can immediately think of. It's like we've all been at parties <laughs> exactly. where we are exactly. in this kind of mode of, you know, thinking intensely about like, do I have dandruff on my shoulders? Exactly. And yet total disdain for everybody at the party, even if they're not, is it Prue? <laughs> yes. Who's <laughs> the fascist in the, in the first seeing here the racist, you know, it's that yes. on his girlfriend yeah. and so on. Yeah. I think that that is a big part of what makes this novel run is that, uh, even though, uh, David Bell and, and many other characters are what might be seen as conventionally unsympathetic, conventionally. So, uh, that doesn't prohibit an, an identification. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you do not, you you restrict uh, interest or you restrict uh, engagement yeah. in these characters. And in fact, I think that I think Delillo pushes that line hard. I think in the first scene, he's spitting in 
ice cubes. He's, you know, he, he blows off BG Haynes for whatever reason. He's kind of a jerk to her. Uh, he's, well, yeah, yeah. He, he's, he's a jerk, uh, for a lot of he is, this he, first scene. I, I won't say for the whole book, but for this first scene, he's a big jerk. But there is, uh, there's a swagger. There's an attractiveness, but there's also this kind of, uh, he's, he's meta narrating himself in his own mind. And the child is in here too. I mean, it's, we would call some of this childish behavior, (laughs) but you have, you know, what the setup of the book in this first chapter has to involve Sullivan as, you know, a, a, a woman who is attracted to him. And I think it's hard to tell when we start, you know, when it gets cemented in our minds that she's clearly this image of a, of a mother figure and, mm-hmm. and this goes beyond a kind of like saying, oh, he's a man who's attracted to older women or more sophisticated artistic women. It's deeper. And, and it's so more mythical. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, indeed. Mythical. But that's where the this kind of ba- somewhat, I wouldn't say exactly balancing vulnerability, but some kind of vulnerability is there. And you, but you have to, you have to kind of, as you're suggesting by saying that this is a repellent narrator, you know, to a lot of readers that you have to be attentive to the, the, the kind of, um, well, defensiveness or the aggressive behavior mm-hmm. that's covering not something soft and although, this phrase soft white underbelly comes up <laughs> near the end. I don't know. It, it, it's such a sinuous thing. I was going to say, you know, you, you've said so many interesting things that thought to me about voice and how it creates self and character and just the nature of, well, just the nature of assertion of, of self. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting it on the spot to reproduce those thoughts about like, like what, what is so, self-creating or, or something about this kind of voice, I, I guess. And, and what are it's, um, this first person, you know, narration, um, what we have throughout the whole book is we have, uh, David's interior thoughts. We have his, his intimate appreciation of the world. We also have his behavior, his actions, uh, a more objective look at his his presence with other people and continually he acts perversely yeah he acts well, extremely, that's always the it's yeah it's and it's perverse in the sense that uh it goes against common sense it goes against common uh appreciations of of the right thing more for example in the old holly episode uh he's asking that girl on the porch if she thinks that he's he's handsome and he really milks it from her and then he asks her well do (laughs) do you want me to ask you if if i think you're pretty and she's like yeah well you just miss (laughs) and he he's constantly toying with people clevenger at the end is one that he doesn't really toy around with because this the only time that he says I didn't understand so-and-so, but I don't want to jump ahead of the gun. Yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, but it is the, the dark abyss. Yes. We, that's where we end. Right? Exactly. We, we, not only no redemptive art, but like we end in the, wor- <laughs> Dave, the worst possible yeah. model of behavior in a sense. You know, yeah, like David Bell doesn't fuck around with, with Clevenger. But uh, yeah. throughout most of the other parts of the book, you have this perversity and from my perspective, what he's doing 
And I think that this ties in completely with, uh, with his filmmaker impulse, but also with his, his novelistic impulse. He pushes himself onto other people, even if it's not the right thing to do. He calls these ego moments. Mm. <laughs> he calls these, uh, even, even him calling the office when he's not there, even him calling Binky, uh, he's constantly pushing himself on people. And to me, what's going on here is, and in, in some ways it's the opposite of Brand writing the, the blank sheet novel. He's writing a novel in real time with, with real people. That, that you know, when, one thing that I kind of think about when I think about voice and character and dialogue is, you know, um, improvis- improvisation, the mm-hmm. ability to improvise, that the, the whole Carol Deming scene right. is about being, and I feel like, I think Running Dog has a scene a lot like that where the, the whole challenges of seduction or being, you know, meeting a woman and the names as well involves this kind of, you know, speak, speaking in a certain way. Here it's, it's um, you know, he's forcing her to make up stories and then it culminates with her saying, and, and I have a black husband and, and so on. And then he kind of interrogates her for a, mm-hmm. a second about that. But that's, you know, it's, 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 it's a kind of encapsulation of David's. He's the great, you know, Lothario seducer. And yet it's so, um, it's so mean. It, it's, it's a lot like that scene on the, the porch where it's like, let me control the language of this, control this communication. And I'll drop uh, and, that, and that maybe is a category for us to get to like why he's named after the bell network. Right. How, how is he the kind of like in control of the, the, the communication of communication. Yeah, right? totally. yeah. That's a good but, point. but, but this, um, well, it, but there you're right. I, I, I picked up on this and, and you saying that it's being created in the moment. And I think there is that, quality, you know, plenty of the film is scripted, but then that's not David speaking his own story. There's a kind of like almost a distance from a superiority to the words there because they are, um, um, made, you know, in the, the, the story of one's life, which is, you know, what the film is about has to be cat and all the suffering of it has to be cast in somebody else's yes. voice. Ventriloquist. Whereas, like these improvisatory party conversation moments are, they're they're not attached to him, right? And that's what makes them devastating and mean and Absolutely. funny and and all these kind of um, uh, things. You know, they speak to his detachment from absolutely the right. World. Yeah. And I think that for all those reasons, this is why uh, he has such a fascination for the Warburton. Oh, messages for Trotsky's messages. Yes. So, yeah. Because I think that David sees these. Well, I mean, just generally speaking, it, they're, they're hilarious, but I feel like David has a special interest in them because they are another example of this kind of forcing onto a, a forcing of a message, a forcing of they're, they're obviously inappropriate for an office setting. Right. There's a mystique to them. Warburton is, uh, is doing it for 
he has his little soliloquy at the end. I mean, he has he has his reasons, but yeah, <laughs> well, it, 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 they they are they allow for an alias, and I, and I think Delillo, you know, it, it, there are. I feel like there's a moment or two um, that are evocative here of um, I can't think of what, but of Bill Gray in Mao Two actually having you know. It, Willard Skansky or, or whatever is, is his real name. Right. Yeah. And there's a, a pen name that, that, you know, to be, and I think there's DeLillo saying in a lot of this, there's a kind of expression of this mastery that allows him to write the autobiography. You know, this novel is not autobiographical. Um, this is not the, um, it's a long arc in DeLillo's career as to like how he comes to write about the Bronx, you know, as his own childhood. But this is so, he's not Italian American. <laughs> he's going to, you know, college in California. Old Howley is somewhere <laughs> in the lower 48. There, there's, there's part of the Americana title maybe is to evacuate um, his, evacuate kind of his own experience right. from the material while never making it. I don't think David ever comes across as generic, but he occupies all these kind of generic zones in a way or something. That's a good point. What the, the author of the first novel never wants to hear is, well, this is basically just you, (laughs) right? That's the ultimate damning. uh, Yeah, I I suppose. I mean, it does like, we know, right. From the vantage point of, as you were saying to me earlier, 50 years later, my right. gosh, 52 years later, yeah, it's amazing that there were so many books to come all about, you know, material that wasn't his own, uh, in a sense. But yeah, I, I think you're right to bring up Mao too, because just as a little throwaway point, David goes from the world to the uh, room. Yeah. And in, in, into exile, science yeah. cunning in exile, of course, the, mm. the, the Kinch reference, but Bill Gray goes from the room to the world, and of course, it doesn't end up very yeah. well for him. But there's a there's a reversal of the of the thrust of Americana in Mautu. Yeah, yeah. But I think the. Do you want me to read the the, the interview quote? I think you have in mind. Yeah, please. Yeah, this I I wrote this down because you know it seems like it captures as you're suggesting that. Almost in an, a, a, a sense that there is a basic polarity in DeLillo's novels that he was kind of working from the beginning and then 20 years later in, in Mao Tu working as well. He says uh, this in the 1993 Paris Review interview with Adam Begley. Um, Mao Tu is a sort of rest and motion book. Rest and motion separated by hyphens is all one phrase. A rest and motion book to invent a category. The first half of the book could have been called The Book. Bill Gray talking about his book, piling up manuscript pages, living in a house that operates as a kind of filing cabinet for his work and all the other work it engenders. And the second half of the book could have been called The World. Here, Bill escapes his book and enters the world. It turns out to be a world of political violence. But yeah, you know, it's tempting to think that David escapes New York. And doesn't Bill Gray live in New York State, upstate New York? I think, and and gets out into the world. That would be the typical road novel. And yet that's what DeLillo wants to subvert it. It is actually a kind of going to a motel room as the stasis of Fort Curtis, where you're on the road trip that 
for some reason stays for I don't know how many days, uh, two weeks, something uh, like that. Yeah, in, yeah. it's a bit unknown Midwestern um, or unlocatable Midwestern town. Um, you know, and then you're you're subverting um, the work. I feel like uh, we could also read the motel passage. Yeah, we, we <laughs> could. But, but st- let's stay on this uh, thread here. It's such a it's such a wonderful binary system to mm-hmm. work. Uh, in some ways, you could see it as very simple: the book, the world. Yeah, but in terms the of the word in the world, I think is something he absolutely plays with at times. Yeah, this, right? It's yeah. It's it's an in, in in the hands of of the right person is it's, it's inexhaustible and it's mm-hmm. endlessly fascinating because you have that consciousness that is piled on the actual matter because of course you are reading a book yourself but you're part of the world and such and so forth through the author who wrote the thing as well but also the characters themselves are enmeshed and yeah, the in, writer within the text. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, the writers, yeah. David Bell doesn't, I think it'd be easy to miss in some ways, uh, you know, maybe on a first read or if you're just whizzing through it, that, that David Bell is the writer of Americana. He is like the manuscript and doing it somehow importantly, 30 years yeah. later with the, the film as a kind of guide, which is for also the material, yes, right? tactile. Yeah. But apparently, the but he's un- almost transcribing is is one way we can see this, right? Yeah. <laughs> it makes me just think, and we need to mention this: just the the size and the length of this film. Apparently, who knows how much exaggeration? Sixteen hours, or no, or, or a week? It, it's or a week. Yeah, yeah. It's, right. uh, it's a lot. It's yeah. a lot of uncut footage. This, this is the writer who would eventually get interested in twenty four hour psycho. In, in absolutely of the, uh, the the sort of slowing down. Absolutely, of, of the, the film so stick two hours. We yeah. also just have sheer excess here, mm. but we also have a parallel with the magenta version of mm. just. Put down everything. I love the idea of Brand's blank novel because, in some ways, the blank novel is the world. The un, the unwritten page, the blank page. It's pure possibility. It's film. Well, right, right, and, and, and Brand. Oh, the, uh, the, huh, well, I, about that. I mean, yeah, the, it, yeah. like I, I love the idea that just a, a blank page and blank film that it is something ready to receive. It's ready to be imprinted, and if. If you carry it around with you, there might be some kind of weird osmosis. And it seems like it seems like David Bell. Well, first of all, uh, he he dis- It's charming just to see him discover the power of the of the camera throughout it all. Right? Yeah. He he plays around. He uses it as an instrument to play around with people. I think a lot of it is him just enjoying ordering people around. Right? Yeah. What um, is the line? My camera enjoys this place and wants to stick around or something like that. How long are you going to stay? A few days, maybe. My camera seems to like this place. <laughs> and it, it almost, you know, it's funny, like, this, I feel like this notion that the camera is <sighs> alive, autonomous, independent, uh, alive, you know, it seems um, that it's, you know, there. I feel like every postmodern novel I read involves a shoots as a simultaneously violent and, you know, uh, filmic, um, mm-hmm. uh, verb, you know, in, in kind of 
ways that are meant to be ironic and and so on. Um, and yet, you know, it's it's. But Delillo is Delillo. I mean, it's a kind of question for the, the history of the novel in a way. I mean, it, it seems like Delillo is is almost. Um, uh, he's he seems. I think this is his material. You know, he, I think he creates this. And I, I don't know. I mean, I don't. I don't want to stay away from saying it claims to originality, distinctiveness. I mean, it is. Um, but no doubt, it, it's it's key to his vocabulary. I think we can say that without a doubt. I agree, hundred yeah. percent. I also think that it has to do with the actual technology in this this time of North America. I I, uh, I recall yeah. the moments where. He says that the camera isn't was meant for sports and it was meant for it's a news camera, right? right. The yeah. scoopic, the scoopic, exactly. 16, yeah, and uh, he talks about kind of the capacities of it, um, what it can and what it can't do, and uh, in some ways, this this whole my camera is interested in this place. It makes me think. Sure, the camera has has an ego, has has predilections, but also there's a there's a submission to the parameters of that machine mm-hmm. that DeLillo, the typewriter that he is, uh, knows, knows about just based on his own craft, but also through other people's crafts as well. Yeah. There's a, let's, let's put it this way. People weren't going around with iPhone 14s. In the, well, in the well, 70s, this is true. Right? Yeah. It's black. He's insistent on black and white. Right. Uh, right. As his, um, filmic medium. And perhaps there's, uh, I, can, I don't know Bergman uh, connection or, or uh, there maybe not. I don't know. I'm interested in what it means to have a news camera mm-hmm. in particular. You know, I probably have more to say as we go along into Lilo's corpus about his interest in news and newspapers and and so on. You know, the, the archive at the Harry Ransom Center is full of newspaper clippings. He's there with his scissors every morning, it seems with the New York times, but, um, that, you know, there is, um, there's a tension between what, what is done at the TV network, um, and what David aspires to in the film. I mean, that goes without saying, I mean, it's sort of obvious. And yet, you know, what are the, um, what is the kind of assertion about, um, news that stays news is the famous definition of, of the poetic in poetry, right? Is it that- makes, I mean, you bring it up the office. Um, his, his project at the office is called soliloquy. Right. Yeah. And in which some, this is a kind of big response to a personalization. Of absolutely. Him. Soliloquy is getting canned because, uh, the sponsor drops out mm. and Warburton has some opinions on, on, on that, which are quite amusing, but, uh, you get the sense that, well, a, a huge part of a huge part of the exhilaration of the book is is the exhilaration that, that Bell himself feels at breaking out. It seems like this project of his, it's him correcting his office life. It's him correcting his home life. It's him manipulating through art his own life in real time with real people and. Uh, Soliloquy seems like the prototype for whatever he does because it is going. It's it's a kind of slice of life show, isn't mm, it? Yeah, he goes up to I people. Slice of death. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he goes up to people. He interviews people. He lets them talk. 
Mm-hmm. It's a soliloquy of just kind of regular old old folks, but it's got the sponsor to backing it. It's got weeds uh, comments all over it. It's it's not his. It, yeah, I think it, you know it makes me think of how there are times like when he plays paper waste paper basketball with. Uh, Austin Wakely, mm-hmm. where he does seem to be recreating the office <laughs> on the road, yeah. you, you know, and, and what the other, um, that there is uh, this kind of, w- one thing I want to say about him breaking out is that, you know, I want to, um, sort of vehemently disagree in a sense in that he is, that, that would be, um, that's the romantic idea behind the novel. I, mm-hmm. I'm not actually vehemently disagreeing. No. I know you'll agree with the, the point I'm making <laughs> that right in the uh, Kerouac and that in, entire idea of going on the road is clearly what, you know, it's only a decade and a half old at this point in the, in the culture when he's publishing this in 71, mm-hmm. you know, that novel is, and there's such a, uh, refutation, I guess, of this escape, you know, the road, the road novel as escape uh, narrative or some kind of um, finding of the, if not the salutary, the, the, the underground or marginal right. in some way. I mean, if it, I mean, I think this is the, in a way that just so central in the book, this sense that um, the world uh, of, well, Fort Curtis and McCompex mimics um, the the enclosures of the of the office world uh, in some way. The motels uh, do that. The, the network, I guess, is, mm. the, is the key word um, that, in a sense, connects the two. I don't know. Maybe I'm not giving this. Maybe exactly no. That, right, that's interesting. But, but, um, that is interesting to consider. I think the, that the fact that um, the whole the whole trip is is more or less completely spontaneous, un, unplanned, off the cuff. No one really knows what's going on for a lot of it, right? Except they're not going anywhere at a certain point. <laughs> it's, they're just pulled into this yeah. town. And they know, just kind of stop. In, in yeah. an unnamed state. One of the, you know, like, as a Missourian, when he says, I don't know what's south of Iowa... <laughs> Uh, I, I react and say, right. I want to say Missouri. And I think there is mention of being in Missouri. He does make it to Chicago at some point. To That's right. The, the family members. Uh, yes. Or the slap, her, the slap her around a little bit. Oh God. <laughs> yes. The, I mean, that's an aspect of David's uh, character. I mean, that to me strikes me as DeLillo going to the, the farthest extreme that he can, kind of get away with of, of making this a repellent yet, you know, he hopes sympathetic, uh, figure. Yeah. The, I mean, the moment that gets me is the, when he has the bayonet yes. in the car as a teenage boy and the girl that he, and because she refuses. Well, I think she said, because she says he's not the right. He, she doesn't enjoy him as much. Right. Yes. Uh, he loses. He says, and then I took the butt end of the rifle to her jaw and it's just this kind of, <laughs> Um, yeah, there's a couple um, things going on in that scene that uh, mm. we could call them red flags, I suppose. Red flags, yeah. yeah. <laughs> bright, bright red, <laughs> deep red parlance. Uh, flags, yeah. But anyway, I mean, I guess we're sort of on this topic of what's, you know, if, if, if you're comparing uh, 
the network and his his life um, there to the road, um, the filmmaking experiment, uh, the, the road trip. You know, how do those things compare? Um, well, you're touching on something here. I like I like the term the network because uh, you know it, it might have more meaning than one. I mean. Uh, America itself, the, just mm. just the, the land, the geography. There's a lot of talking about. Uh, there's a lot of opinions on California in this mm. in this book versus you know East versus West Coast, but also just what the the good old American trip means. I guess you know subtly there's a lot of thought about what the great American novel uh, is or should be, yeah. even though that doesn't come up. Um, but uh, in the beginning of the trip, David thinks that every river is the, the Mississippi, right? He's, 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 quite, he's quite ignorant. <laughs> he he of, is quite ignorant. Of yes. the land. Yeah. And there's a certain, I mean, naivete would be the the pleasant way of, of saying it, but there's just a lot of straight up ignorance of, of where he is, where he's going. And a lot of the appeal is just him stumbling into every situation that he comes across. There's a, there's a lot, there's, there's kind of the subtext of, you know, the, the traveling band, like the troop, almost like the, the misfit caravan. Uh, and it seems like everyone's a misfit caravan uh, <laughs> in some, mm. in some respect. Uh, I mean, okay, maybe I'll backpedal that a little bit. Maybe that's more part four. Uh, but there's a lot of people in this book that are themselves in a network or in a system in the loop. Yeah. As Tom uh, Leclerc would yeah, right, put it in right. his book. Yeah. Uh, there's lots of systems that David plugs into and, and plugs out of. Yeah. Well, you know, two things. Not only Kerouac, but the more, more recent Ken Kesey, the Merry Pranksters, the further the bus, bus yeah. the electric Kool-Aid acid test mm-hmm. is all over this book as a kind of object of, I think, parody or <laughs> it, it, it just wants to distance himself mm-hmm. from it. And yet not, you know, there's this DeLillo, I think, as we'll have no doubt, you know, reason to refer to throughout is, is skeptical of counterculture. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's interesting that part of a lot of the film that what makes it so long is that he also adds, um, material from demonstrations and riots as he, and parades as he says, uh, later and, right. and why that would, you know, more news oriented material. Mm-hmm. And yet, of course we don't, aside from the, Gosh, just so much, get overwhelmed just sort of associating things with this book because I think immediately of the kind of one thing we do see, which is the, the black couple who may be brother and sister and so on, um, in Central Park who are at a, a demonstration at, at some speeches that he, um, uh, does a little, you know, um, riff on. Mm-hmm. I think in the voice, I think it's part of the film as, narrated monologue it's in austin wakeley's mm-hmm. voice anyway but yeah the so but the, the the second thing i was thinking of earlier aside from kesey's uh bus and tom wolf's world right is that's another huge part you know when he gets to the reservation incredible shrinking man yes 
Um, and the uh, young woman uh, that he has the Jill. Uh, Jill or Jill, Julia? Jill. Jill. I, I think, think it's Jill. Yeah. Like what they are doing as the destination. The and death it, machine. I mean, it's right. Well, it's totally setting up Great Jones Street and the Happy Valley commune. Absolutely. The cult. Um, yes. Um, you know, and, and, and in so many ways, these first few books, three books, really seem like so interconnected once, it, which we'll have a chance That's to That's their about, beauty, but, really. Yeah. They, they're they kind of like a trilogy. Yeah, some. one leading into the next sort of. But anyway, what what is the, how should we see Incredible Shrinking Man? I mean, just to isolate him, that would seem to be a version of this kind of diminishing existence that David is thinking about throughout. And yet it seems like a kind of contrasting um, path or a much more artificial, um, less productive path than sort of the Bergman idea. Less productive. I think that that's the way to put it. I I was struck. We need total efficiency and productivity out of uh, these scenes and so on. I was struck this time reading it because in part four, Without his troupe, without his actors, uh, David Bell is a lot... He, he's outnumbered. He, is, there's the feeling of him being um, uh, just kind of quieter, uh, not really in control. He tells Clevenger, you know, hey, I think I've taken up enough of your time. He's like, call me captain. <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not done with you yet. Mm. Uh, the the end call uh, right before the book closes. It's it's kind of a rescue. It's like an SOS. In as far as I see it, there's a type of okay. I've I've had enough. Hmm. Did you get that sense? Does he call back to New York? Is that the call he makes? I guess the last page. Maybe he just books a flight. Yeah, I know he buys he- a gift for Mary. That's it. Oh, right. Yeah. In the very last paragraph where he's busy um, with the uh, recreating JFK's route through uh, Dealey Plaza um, here. Yeah. I I mean, what I was going to say is that this is all the Clevenger stuff is it's all after being disappointed in the Sullivan relationship, the the sort of climactic, anticlimactic moment in the book. And And the break break there. Yeah. And you, you do wonder... Um, you know, how much um, does David get to go back to these terms that we kind of were talking about from the beginning? Is this, is this an expression of, um, well, vulnerability is the word that <laughs> keeps coming to mind that I don't uh, want to invoke because it does he never seems that, um, but he, he's been chastened uh, somehow. And there are also interesting comments in the, this last stretch um, about literature and, and, and how this Western landscape that he's seen before in books is literature. Right. And, and there's a kind of, um, well, the, maybe a diminish, not a, really a diminishment of literature, but maybe a suggestion when I think about that 30 year stretch where he has that, where he has to, to, in a sense, take time off between these artistic projects and write the, much more successful novel Americana than, um, you know, as compared to the film, um, that right. there's, um, something being mediated there about, um, one success at the end of the book is 
he has um, come closer to being a writer, or or that well, it's a it's a much more complex complicated process than I'm suggesting. You know, that it is one but thing we have to think about. You're right about that. I think that to rephrase what I was driving for um, in part three the characters passing by come up to him and are like, can I be in your movie? Mm. And in part four, he's in other people's movies. He, uh, David Bell is, he gets sucked into other people. He can't, he can't quite control, uh, his, his ego, his, uh, his power is diminished as a person, it seems. And to me, that's what makes the, the fourth part so compelling. And so maniacal, there's a type of madness to it, right? And it's because he's not in control anymore. He's he's along for someone else's ride. Mm. In some ways, he's 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 not the auteur. Exactly. Anymore. He's yeah. he's been kind of dethroned mm. and ejected out of the. You're right about talking of the the climax and that that failed climax. It really does come out of nowhere, and it is it is interesting to see how. Maybe it doesn't come out of nowhere. I think that there's that tension of waiting for it, but when it happens and it, you're on the other side of it, it's just done, right? He's just out. It's amazing how he just kind of drops. He drops it. Yeah. Well, and he's been, it's, you know, it, the, I mean, inevitably, I think to, you know, I, as a kind of assessor of, uh, a novel's narrative and thinking of the question as I'm sure you are in the middle part of the book, what's going on? Why are Sullivan and Brand and Pike tolerating this? Mm. And what are they doing in all this time that David is spending you know, writing these scripts at the local <laughs> at library, the library yeah. and then painting the entirety of one <laughs> script on the walls of this hotel room. Right. So on. And it turns out, you know, I mean, I think, Delillo, to a certain extent, is not maybe firmly in control of that narrative problem, and yet it pays off in the sense that Sullivan's just, you know, he's she's never been, it. there's been such a, a kind of mythos built up around how much of a um, opponent Brand is right as the the novelist hit, and then he's exposed as the writer of, of blank pages. But there are so many other contrasts. You know, military service versus not, although service is you know, the wrong word. But he holds that him. against David, and end. and yet it, it it makes so much sense that there's just this uh, simplicity to David being quote betrayed by by Sullivan with with Brand uh, and so on. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I think that those climactic scenes do bear scrutiny that the, the, and yet, um, you know, just the suggestion uh, with, uh, with Sullivan, I mean, we might say a few things of, about that. It, it's, it's sort of non-sex sex, which is right <laughs> for David's character. I think that the, the kind of great, there's a real sterility throughout the, the book. It's very um, mentalized. Yes. It's very cerebralized and it's very perspective focused, if if I recall right. Should we read that? Yeah, out? Right. Um is it between a chapter yeah, we get the end of well, 
Here's the thing. There's a game going up. 3.30 and 3.31 yeah, are right. the end of the story, which, um, and then we get, so we get the last, um, the last of Sullivan speaking, I think, at, on 3.31. Um, and then chapter 11. Well, but, but let me read the last paragraph on 3.31. Sure. So, so I woke in the middle of the night. Sullivan was gone. So this is, you know, what the sex is going to happen in between. That's right. Allegedly, in between that, the end of the story, and then this paragraph that begins, I woke in the middle of the night, Sullivan was gone. The wind blew a piece of paper across the bed, and I got up and lowered the window. Then I smelled cookies baking. And, you know, I think it. then we have the actual scene in, after the chapter break, the actual sex scene. And you want to say that maybe it doesn't actually happen, that he dreams it. And yet I feel like there's enough of Sullivan making reference to how bad it was, how, uh, how unlikely a kind of uh, pairing they are and so on when they, you know, they had, they do have the scene in the morning after I'm going on about this because it's, I think it's a sort of unresolved, uh, ambiguity You're, that you have to believe that, that it does happen. It's just maybe doesn't happen with the, in the terms David describes it. Here. You're hundred percent right. I, I think we should read out at least the, uh, the dialogue on three thirty six. Okay. Which is the morning after, uh, all, I'll read this part out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, From the middle of the page. This is Sullivan first talking. I hope you didn't miss me this morning, David. I couldn't sleep, so I walked back out to the camper. I didn't think you'd mind. What took place? What occurred or happened? It seems to have slipped my mind. Yeah. (laughs) It stopped raining and the fantasies came out to play. Your home movie had put you in a state of anguish. I tried to console you. You wanted to be drenched in sin, and so I made it my business to help you along. Old friends have obligations to each other. David, I truly love you and hate you. I love you because you're a beautiful thing and a good boy. You're more innocent than a field mouse, and I don't believe you have any evil in you, if that's possible. And I hate you because you're sick. Illness, to a certain point, inspires pity. Beyond that point, it becomes hateful. It becomes very much like a personal insult. One wishes to destroy the sickness by destroying the patient. You're such a lovable cliché, my love, Mm. and I do hope you found the center of your sin, although I must say that nothing we did last night struck me as being so terribly odd. Kiss my ass, I said. (laughs) Yeah, so there it is. (laughs) <laughs> Which might be one of the uh, acts that he's uh, <laughs> sort of <laughs> pleased with, or fetishistically involved in, in the in the, in the actual sexy. Well, you know, Mike, as you're reading it, I sort of say, "Oh yeah, this is Sullivan. This is Delillo in the voice of Sullivan addressing David, not just as David, but as American." I think that he's innocent. Um, he's lovable and yet he's sick and, and worthy of hate. Totally. That, that seems to be the, the key thing about the book, right? Um, Absolutely. And in addition to that, somewhat incapable of separating fantasy from reality. And like an American. Abs- right? the, Absolutely. The, yeah. That 
the American dream as <laughs> bad sex scene. And that, <laughs> here, right? yeah. and that I think in part at least is that sickness that is being talked about. Yeah. Someone it's, it's, it's so funny though, because uh, if we are to, it, it brings back to mind uh, Ken Wilde, that failed poet who couldn't, who was too sane. Right. Oh, and becomes a systems player. <laughs> that's right. right. And that's his uh, path that David, uh, you know, sort of bounces away from. Yeah, or is that's right. Away from so it's, perhaps he was not sick enough. He was too sane. And uh, the the artist hero, because I do think that this book is both to you know to pull out a couple of pretentious terms. It's a Bildungsroman, a formational, yeah. but also a Kunst. Roman, the formation of the artist. Yeah. In a similar way to portrait of the artist. Oh, it's definitely. Man. Yeah. So and Sullivan is at times the bird girl of Stephen. Absolutely. Daedalus with, I mean, the, the first image of her is Distor- of her, uh, it distorts you that. I think flamingos do that stand on one leg, mm-hmm. right? That seems to be one key. And there are other references to her as bird. Absolutely. Uh, bird like. Yeah. And here, David, it feels like a bit of a chastisement for that very, that very impulse, that very drive. Maybe, maybe this is okay in Ireland, but in America, you kind of come across as a jackass sometimes if you act like this. You know, it's okay for Fellini. It's okay for Antonioni. Mm. It's okay for Bergman. Mm. In America, maybe you're just a bit of a jerk. <laughs> You're, you're such an embodiment of the national psyche, I, I think, is the um, because one of the things that, you know, uh, with, say, Fellini, I, I don't know anything about Fellini, so I shouldn't say, but I'm thinking of like, you know, the sins of America are current. They're mm-hmm. in the war in Vietnam right now, as DeLillo is writing, as opposed to being about, you know, writing about the Italian fascism or. Um, or something like that. It's not that as, distance. A, as a history, right? Um, coming along in, in the wake of, of these things. That's a good um, point. That's let, a good point. Let me read the paragraph that uh, I have here, which is from the essay. Again, notes for a definitive meditation by someone else on the novel Americana. <laughs> this is subtext one. Previously, we read from subtext two, which is about the magenta um, manuscript. But uh, this is. Uh, what the book is, what survives in this cut-in-half manuscript. Subjects one, patriotism as incest. And this is just so illuminating, I think. Much of this survives in the final text. The author evidently constructed two planes of incest in Americana. One is based on relations, or near relations, between the protagonist and his mother. The second might be called political incest. The notion that baseless patriotism is an elaborate, Elaborately psychotic manifestation of love for mother country. Almost worthy of reading a few, few more times. So mm-hmm. uh, important. And then the, the next little paragraph. When protag or protagonist goes to bed with a particular older woman, the two planes become one. Uh, and then he quotes from his own novel. And entering her, I was occupied by her. Another turning on an axis, wrong way on the bed. The army occupied by the city. Occupied. Um, but it's all there in that, 
in that chastisement, that mm-hmm. dialogue you read that leads him to say, kiss my ass, um, <laughs> which maybe is also an, an American response that you're, you're sick. Um, um, illness to a point inspires pity beyond that point. It becomes hateful. It becomes very much like a personal insult. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing insight. And I, I totally agree that that expands beyond, uh, the character, although I, I do think that David Bell is, he's a type, right? He's a, yeah. In some ways, uh, especially his, his upbringing, he's, uh, he's the golden boy. But, right. Uh, well, and it, it, you know, one thing I've been, was thinking of saying earlier is it seems important that he is, um, kept out of military service for, uh, kept out of the draft for, I think, hilarious reasons that it, 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 it ridiculous reasons, you know, <laughs> Says he's clearly a healthy young man. I think a flat feet sort of diagnosis <laughs> right, or something yeah. like that. In one, that's right. And it's passed over. I guess what I'm getting at is is well, a couple things. Delillo, I mean, clearly wants to write a kind of anti-war novel, and yet the way he does it is by these incredibly displaced means. And it strikes me that you know go soon into end zone, which is even more pointedly about military recruitment and staying out of the war, um, you know, with Gary Harkness. And yet, um, there, there's such a, God, there's such an elaborateness to how to write a kind of novel critical of uh, the U S and Vietnam, which mm-hmm. is true of, of these, of the period, right? The time of publication of both the, both these novels, but that's to bite off, um, a next, uh, morsel in, in our, uh, ongoing work. End zone has the great, the great father patriot looming over, mm. whereas this might be the, the mother country. Do you yeah. agree? End zone is, is tension mm. with, uh, that it's split in that way. And mm. the, the coach and, mm. uh, that whole masculine football structure mm-hmm. where as, uh, I mean, is it as simple as, as David Bell looking for, looking for love in a, in, in not just a, you know, licentious, superficial, sexual sense, but actual, actual love. Is that the, the motivation here? For all of it, and he gets tangled in, he gets tw- he gets twisted up in in that, and it gets it gets messy. Well, there, you know, it makes me think. There's that Stephen Dedalus is definitely the Stephen Dedalus of Ulysses mm-hmm. is definitely a comparison case for him because the the mother's being called home from college for the mother's death um, when it's too late is is what Stephen experiences right it's a telegram and i think in, in ulysses exactly. here it's the father who is so out of it um and so callous in in how he tells his son about his mother having cer- cervical cancer but it 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 seems as though um i don't know i mean is it enough to say this is a a um, d- well i i think in that context one of the things Stephen discovers or there's a line about the the one word that every every man knows or every man understands and it's i think it's a matter of debate among joyce scholars um, it's motel right <laughs> <laughs> it's motel 
I think it's the four letter word oh, known as well, love, well, Mike. Well, uh, but I can't say for for certain. Um, but well, I mean, I think you're you're being perverse and <laughs> suggesting that a Delillo character uh, as arrogant and terrible as as David Bell might. Uh, might be on the looking for love. It's it's a funny question. <laughs> I think it's a funny question because in some ways it is kind of unaskable in in this book. Um, at the same time, uh, I mean, it's an absurd question, but why if uh, if there's if there's two planes of incest going on here, why? Why, why are, why is that situation happening? Yeah. Why would that situation be permitted to happen and willingly so? It doesn't seem like there's rape going on. It seems like it's consensual incest. And I suppose, uh, the question would be not only who, but, but why? (laughs) Well, it's fundamentally, I mean, it, we, it's fundamentally a, a story not of um, adult love. It's a story of immaturity, lack of maturation into adult love that is, you know, underwritten by the fact that the mother remains the um, obsessed over love object that cannot be gotten beyond. Now, I'm speaking as though I have a, a kind of control over the Freudian vocabulary. I, I, I really don't um um but it seems that you know david is dysfunctional in all these ways that speak to the fact that there will never be adult love in this um uh, worthwhile adult love in, in this universe you know and that seems reflected in all the you know in the 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 bell parents exactly. relationship it seems reflected in the fact that sullivan and brand are you know, Sullivan isn't what she seemed the 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 goddess, the unapproachable <laughs> a, a figure that that she seems to David and Brand, who is this kind of we can all agree, you know, novelist Monke, the the kind of um, you know not worthy of of of, of David Bell, also you know a, a, a somebody who's bombed lots of villages in mm-hmm. Vietnam and, and so on. There's a hilarious accusation that David makes uh, to Brand that Sullivan's sleeping with him only because he's afraid to be a writer. <laughs> it, <laughs> like, that's interesting. It's like, what? It? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, like it's, like, it's a pity thing, I guess. But um, there's also the patterning. Um, I, I love the, 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 the Bell lineage. There's the father Clinton Harkavy, and then there's right. the grandfather Harkavy Clinton. Oh, I didn't realize they and, were yeah. they were sort of mirror images. Or That's right, inversions and, of, of each other. Um, it is it is a twisted family. Uh, the the mother the mother is spooky. Uh, there's the dolls. There's the the kite souls. Mm-hmm. There's um, there's certainly a, a fragility and nervousness and a, a, a general well victimization, which is you know. Uh, it's it's cruel and um, quite a quite an episode in the book with the doctor, right? That scene with Doctor Weber. Um, there's also terrible. The, there's also the recreation of that in the film, mm-hmm. where uh, which is hilarious. The the big C, 
Do you remember this? Um, yeah, the, the it, monologue. Does Carol the, Deming have to read or embody that voice? I, I think. Yeah. I think so. Yes. Yeah. You know, do, do any of your patients despise the very earth that you stand on? Mm. You know, these these questions to the doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's clearly this um, after the fact revenge. Mm. Uh, this this deep. At least this is how I read it. This it's a it's a deep resentment of um not only lack of of care but uh, abuse of, yeah. of that position yeah um but also that this is this is endemic of medicine that this is like the institution of medicine it's a it's it's a position to to abuse people yeah. I, at least I, I got the sense that there was a a broadening of of this role of the doctor yeah the doctor and the parishioner Right. Well, the pastor, the pastor, yeah, the, uh, minister, Sorry, yeah yes, the, the minister, right? Who who come, who also is is kind of present to, in the in the film, as I recall. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Can I read you the passage I've been looking for about love in the office world? This is on page twenty because I think or the the fathers being these great businessmen, um, you know, um, a whole subject in the the name of the family after. The Bell Network mm-hmm. and 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 that association suggests that it's not just that there are families lacking love. That would be a kind of like lesser novel of of domesticia, maybe. But it's that America provides these kind of surrogate families or, or maybe replacement families. This is um, David after they've I think come back from the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, he says it was the time to sit on your sofa instead of behind the desk. And to call your secretary into the office and talk in soft voices about nothing in particular, films, books, water sports, travel, nothing at all. There was a certain kind of love between you, th- between you then, like the love in a family which has shared so many familiar moments that not to love would be inhuman. And the office itself seemed to be a special place, even in its pale, yellow, desperate light, so much the color of old newspapers. There was the belief that you were secure here in some emotional way, that you lived in known terrain. If you had a soul and it had the need to be rubbed by roots and seasons to be comforted by familiar things, then you could not walk among these desks for 2000 mornings nor hear these volleying typewriters without coming to believe that this was where you were safe. Mm. Um, it, it, and well, it, it, it's touching I mean, mm-hmm. even, even if it's uh, even if it's a sign that what is the, the, I think the Zen class at, at college Mr. ends o. with them. Uh, saying that the corporations are coming uh, right. for yes. you, that, that this is your last chance. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is something I would say, but I say versions of this, you know, not as eloquently to my own students. Like this is the last time you'll be kind of, you know, focused on for what you're thinking and what you care about in terms of aesthetics and so on, and, and that the corporations are coming um, for your uh, soul in a sense. And yeah, DeLillo is registering all these things and here. There are levels behind that statement, right? We read this, and in, I think you're 100% right that it is it is touching. That word safe really, really is a, a strong punctuation. Uh, and yet, it's, it's a displaced sentiment in, in many ways. It's, uh, it's, I think it comes from the father and his, uh, his worldview. There's also... I, I feel like part of the honesty of 
and, and this is going to sound weird, but part of the honesty of David Bell as a, as a narrative voice is both his candor and the way that he very tactfully under, he allows himself to be undercut by himself. Mm-hmm. I think that this, this talk of the soul being rubbed by roots and seasons, comforted by familiar things, you get this, you get this sense of this like wonderful or like choreography or like there's a naturalism here and it it could be, it can't be further from the truth. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, but bringing it, putting it in terms of the soul reminds me that David is longing throughout for a philosophy or theology that would, um, help him orient himself that this is a spiritual autobiography. The mothership. Well, he, he ends yeah. this by saying we had just returned to the mothership. Mothership, which is evocative of mother country that they, um, you know, he works on that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's as though you have a set of almost modular units in a sense that can sit where the office is evocative of America while uh, still being just its own, um, thing or it, but it's a right. It, it's a it's a structure that can be brought into this symbolic network that Delillo has of things that are polluted or made perverse or incestualized. Absolutely, you know? um, that, and mother is a sign of that. Right, that any mother can be um, travestied or absolutely um, mistreated. Um, it's also you're you're hundred percent right. It's also as a statement. It's uh, this whole safety, it's patently false. There's the constant gossip of who's mm-hmm. getting canned, who's getting fired. Well, a lot of it's engineered job. by David. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of like insecurity about age, about talent, about everything. And um, that's where so much of the humor of the first part comes from. But uh, it's humorous because it's, it's absurdly anxious and insecure. It seems like everyone is insecure. It seems like we Denny in his barber's chair. Uh, there's, it, it seems like you can just poke a hole through it all. Uh, one of the great scenes is um, early on. Uh, there's a, a construction worker that waves. Oh, what, I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's so amazing. <laughs> and all of a sudden it's just like an ad hoc celebration of life. Yeah. It's like everyone's, there's the secretary who's on her knees with both hands waving. It's, it's, it's like you were, I am here. So like, yeah. say, you were saying hi to me. <laughs> shall yeah, we, shall yeah, we read yeah. that out? Yeah. Okay. It, it's it's, it's it, relatively it, it's, early. It is. It's like in the first, um, maybe second chapter. Uh, well, are we going to... Okay, here it is. 16. 16, yeah. yeah. Good. Yeah, I looked out uh, the window. Is it my turn? Go ahead. Yeah. Okay. I looked out the window. Men in yellow helmets were working on a building that was going up across the street. They weaved in and out of its hollow bones, shooting acetylene, okay. and catwalked over shaky planks. Strangely, they did not seem to move with any special caution. Perhaps they had come to terms with the fear of falling. They had probably seen others fall and despised those deaths for the relief that followed the shock, a relief that must have risen with the wind, floor to floor, up the raw, spindling shanks of the building. What could you do but go quickly to a dark bar and drink three burning whiskeys? At one level, two men squatted, riveting, 
and another, a level above, jumped from plank to plank, his arms held out slightly, hands at hip length. In mid-jump, at a certain angle against the open side of the building, he had the sky behind him, a rich and early blue, and they were framed in girders, man and sky, for what seemed an impossible second. I could see the riveters and the man jumping, but they could not see each other. I watched for a long time, simultaneously trying to map the office voices and make them mean something. Then another man appeared from behind a girder, a tall man whose pants did not quite reach the top of his work boots. He stood motionless for a moment, hand canted against the rim of his helmet, shielding his eyes from the sun. He seemed to be looking at us. Then he lifted his hand above his head and began to wave. He was looking right at me, waving. I didn't know what to do. The cool voices clicked, measuring, compromising, destroying, pressuring. I felt he had to be acknowledged. I didn't know why, but I felt it had to be done. It was absolutely imperative. A sign had to be given. Look, I said, look at the man over there. He's waving at us. Look, Isabel said, he's waving. That construction worker, do you see him, Weed? Then we were all on our feet, all eight of us, crowding before the window, waving back to him. It was exhilarating. We were all waving and laughing. Weed began to shout, we see you, we see you. We shoved each other to get more room. Isabel was trying to climb onto the wide radiator shelf that edged out from the bottom of the window. I helped her up and she knelt there, waving with both hands now. The sky was cloudless. We were laughing uncontrollably. What is going on here? It's just, I mean, I have to, I think I called the body count or counting the house scene, you know, pure DeLillo or something. This is even pure <laughs> because it's so, it's taking this experience and kind of injecting, you know, a, a sort of mundane experience or what we have come to feel as mundane. You mm-hmm. know, those, those people who work in office towers and certainly I've, you know, looked out the window and been annoyed with workers or something like that or window washers or, cleaners and injecting a whole existential narrative into it because, um, and a class driven narrative Absolutely. Uh, because there's, it, it reminds me of the later, much later scene when, uh, to shovel snow and old Howley is talked about as this kind of, you know, event of manhood and, and, and life. A ritual. Yeah. Um, and yet it's, um, you know, it's it's late. It, it itself is has danger to it. The uh, mother can, says, "Yo, oh, you know, men have had heart attacks uh, shoveling snow." But uh, there's a kind of uh, David in this world is expressing a kind of admiration for people who actually work uh, and build things. <laughs> um, it, you know, and and, and that's it. There, there's nothing kind of. Um, uh, you know, it's a kind of cliche of the the higher class, upper middle class existence that uh, is, is recognition. Here. Yes. Um, well, yeah, and but it, philosophically speaking, I mean, it's uh, isn't it? Isn't it the you know recognition is so is what Hegel says we're all <laughs> after exactly that, that that's what makes it so profound and funny exactly. and profoundly funny exactly is we see you and acknowledge is a word that I was you <laughs> yeah. know, thinking thinking about at the bottom of the of that page uh, there 
it, it's so it's it's fundamental, right? That the act of acknowledgement, the act of saying we see it was absolutely imperative. A sign had to be given. I yeah. I agree with all that you just said. There's also the uh, the sheer human level of mm-hmm. uh, of connection through the glass, through a building that is already made. Uh, there's a there's an element of progress, I guess, with with the construction worker. There's a there's an element of human contact, but the flip side of that, and also the flip side of the Hegelian equation, is alienation. Mm. And I feel like this uncontrollable laughter. Mm-hmm. There's there's a frantic element. There's to it. something uncanny. And, there and there's a dark in it. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. I feel like there's a a dark exaggeration, almost a manicness, which doesn't cancel out the. The jubilation doesn't cancel out everything, mm-hmm. but it's there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the richness of the scene, why it's hilarious, but also why it's profound is that it includes all of those, uh, amb- ambivalencies mm-hmm. in them. Mm-hmm. It, it contains, it, it's, it's the whole package and it is, yeah, I'm glad that you say it's, you know, it's got the DeLillo stamp on <laughs> it. It's got the DeLillo it signature. Does. Well, you know, and it makes me think uh, that, um, uh, how he, um, I mean, the, the, it makes me think of Great Jones Street and the fireman uh, scene in Fire, 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 <laughs> Fire, uh, which we, we will get to. But this uh, this act of looking out the window, um, yeah, and in that is, is so important, and it's it's such a um, um, I don't know uh, cliched scene of becoming potentially you know, looking out the window, and it strikes me too that. One one of the things that interested me was the fact that D- David says at one point, film was made for space mm-hmm. to to vast spaces, and I think he's thinking of westerns and Monument Valley and and so on. And there's some great writing that you know I could never find about about that uh, quality of the camera. And yet, where does he go? He films in single motel rooms. <laughs> Um, and films kind of nothing but faces against the wall. And he get, you know, he says to Austin Wakely, uh, up against the wall, motherfucker, at one point, <laughs> again, suggesting that kind of what, execution. Yeah, shooting it, shooting with the camera, shooting with a gun, but also that there's something inherently, um, just, uh, on, um, you're not using the, the camera for its great, um, evocative, expressive, um, capabilities uh, in a sense, and I and I suppose I think of that here because this is a kind of uh, a framed scene, a sort of rare scene. But also, I think of that uh, inevitably. We think of the the men on the lunch girder having lunch on the girder, you know, high up above um, uh, the what is it, the Chicago skyscrapers, or or maybe New York. Um, but that's, you know, it's a kind of um, famous photograph. That, right. Uh, There's an iconic. And, it, you know, it, and such tension between the sublime experience that you become numb to, you know, and that the workers necessarily <laughs> have to be, you know, a, a certain kind of numb to. Otherwise, they'd be up there um, going, oh, my God, oh, my God. That's a good point to bring up because I feel that if there is one thread... Uh, there's multiple threads, but one thread to uh, follow, or one thread that, that ties this book together, is the the gauge of on one end 
uh, David being interested or thrilled or experiencing an epiphany and being bored. Yeah. <laughs> right? The, the, right. The, the, all that boredom material. Exactly. It's, it's, it's wonder. I mean, it, it seems like a great job of editing, I have to say, because I don't, um, I don't feel it you know, no. as burdensome material, no. and yet I get the theme uh, very much, you know. I love when he brings up in conversation, I'm beginning to be, I'm, I'm getting mm-hmm. bored. Uh, it's something that he's not shy of expressing, but he also is, it goes back to that, um, that first couple of pages, just the, the shot, the stimulus to the, the numbness of the brain. Um, he is, he's, he's looking, he's looking for, Where am I going with this? I guess I'm I'm losing my own thread here. I don't want to spin <laughs> you are off plotless uh, a book about plotless. <laughs> I don't want to spin off into generalities here, but um, there are multiple epiphany. If we're going to the Joycean route, mm, mm-hmm. I suppose the epiphany mm. is uh, epiphany paralysis. The the old dynamic of uh, mm. Dubliners. I think that there is uh, if you sub in boredom for paralysis. Uh, you could you could run with that quite far in this novel too. Mm. There's a few there's a few epiphanies he has. One of them is simply just discovering. There's the image of the woman cutting the hedge uh, yeah. with the clippers, and this is how he gets the idea for the film. Yeah, have you pondered that connection at all? There are several moments like that where I I sort of make a note as to why you know because the book can seem directionless uh, in so many ways. The cookies and, baking, and one, you know? it, it, yeah, um, and the woman iron. She's also there's the vision of the uh, a kind of mother figure ironing. I think at uh, another point as well. But, I'm sure there is. Um, but but yeah, like how uh, one thing leads logically to the next. Um, in David's actions, because he is the great, you know, and, and I think Dillo is quite interested in that, right? It almost a, a kind of, um, well, one thing that film evokes, it, it, you know, and in the film history, his books provide is this question of montage and the connection between images, and 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 David seems to enact or embody uh, some of that too. The kind of question of of the cut. Uh, yes. Between between uh, frames, as it, as it were, continuity. Yeah, he's made the film that I think he describes right at, at various points as as kind of moving between scenes without um, uh, without a kind of uh, necessary logic, um, and and the gosh, it's the book does that. <laughs> I suppose is one thing we could say. Well, yeah. one of the opening statements of the Notes Toward a Definitive Meditation, number three, this isn't a novel at all. It's a movie composed solely of subtitles. Mm, mm. And that's that's quite a statement. Uh, I, feel, I feel like if that's so, then um, those cuts, those scene cuts, uh, might be easier to situate. Yeah. Have you seen, uh, like, Weekend, the Godard? film i haven't seen that one okay i mean i think that we would a fuller (laughs) examination of this kind of quality of of scene cutting between novel and film would be 
um, informed, I guess, by well, as the next uh, entry makes is, uh, mentions Child of Gadar and Coca Cola, mm-hmm. which is you know the uh, a play on Gadar saying, um, "Is it masculine, and feminine?" And he says, "We were children of of Marx and Coca Cola," mm-hmm. um, but that effort. I think Dolo succeeds quite a bit in making um, this kind of pastiche film with all sorts of illogical, ridiculous uh, movements, uh, connections, you know, terrorist actions, craziness, um, while keeping it relatively tame. Also, this is a very kind of um, and, and understandable uh, in a way that I don't associate with the, this uh, you know, French New Wave. Mm-hmm. Um, that I'm that I'm evoking again without uh, kind of authority over the over the material that uh, I imagine uh, someone could come along and uh, discount this um, general impression of uh, Godard weekend and so on. Well, as uh, as Simmons is known to say, I thrive on imagery. It seems to have a laxative effect. <laughs> <There's>... <laughs> I can't believe you find these little. Uh, Witticisms, just uh, at a moment's notice. Um, Simmons St. Jean. Exactly. Right, right yeah. Uh, quite a quite a memorable character. Mm. It's something to think that this might be optioned into film uh, one day. Yeah. That would be almost hopelessly convoluted in, yeah. in some bizarre sense of... I did t- we didn't talk at all about demonology as a... As a um, but... Um, and ritual, uh, that's a, that's a, a subject I have an interest in. Um, it's, it's a huge part of, of just the tenor yeah. and tone of this book. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, my sense of the book is that you have all these devilish characters, devil evoking characters, none of whom seem able to almost offer the, um, you know, they're not playing the role that, um, the devil does in the Faust myth or, or you know, um, where the, the dark art is granted to this figure, although David does embody, uh, some of that, but, you know, brand is a name is seems evocative of Hawthorne's Ethan brand, mm-hmm. uh, a, a very devilish figure, although it's been a while since I read that short story, they visit Hawthorne's house in the Southern Gables. It seems a, they're not in that direction. Clevenger mm-hmm. would be the the kind of um, uh, another figure. Be, be Warren Beasley. He's beastly. He's he's the beast. And there's so much. Um, what does he say? You know, <laughs> eat your children and and wife at some point. You know, just these kind of incredibly apocalyptic, uh, apocalyptic imperatives. But Clevenger would seem to be the one that um, in you know I think the name is meant to suggest the cloven hooves of the. Of the devil. Um, Agreed. Uh, that David, um, that seems to be, as, as you were suggesting earlier, the mo- he's the, he's the, the most evil uh, figure. And the one David is ultimately powerless against, you know, the, the, the scene at the racetrack or the test track can only be left behind, you know, escaped rather than um, uh, kind of rejected or moralized. It's, about it's a true end zone. It's a yeah. the circular loop of that test track. The tires, there's, there's, the the slap, the horrible slapstick of that orgy scene. Uh, 
the first time I, I read that, I was, I was just kind of gobsmacked at the kind of, it's only a couple pages, but it seems very never ending because yeah. of the repetition of, I mean, it's, it's almost like a three stooges kind of a thing, yeah. um, but in everyone's just pissing and, and vomiting on each other. And well, and it also seems like a kind of Ulysses reference as well to either Circe and the, the, the night, uh, what the, the red light district, the night town. Um, but I'll, I don't know. I'm put in mind of Stephen and, and Bloom, you know, pissing together after the, um, end of that night. Um, anyway, I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, a good old fashioned orgy is, uh, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Drinking beer and, uh, whiskey seven o'clock in the morning. There's nothing That's wrong right, with that. Starting I, in on the drinking. I don't mean to come across like a prude, but <laughs> a good Catholic boy. Like to little <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. all of the religious undertones and rituals, uh, you know, what's well, the come, bottom come to head. Yeah. for sure. Um, there is uh, there's an obvious violence to Clevenger with that story of um, putting the dog down, mm. but the the daughter kills herself instead, mm. and um, the charge is cruelty towards animals or something mm. like that. Uh, you know that that's a part in the in the book where it's like okay, that's pretty unambiguous. Like David Bell can't get on board with this. Mm. It's too much. There's a there's a point. Clevenger is uh, he's like the reality principle of mm. uh, he's he's out of a Cormac McCarthy novel mm. mm. basically. He doesn't fit. I don't think like all for all of the weed Denny's and the the Zajacs and all of the like the Humbros who eat mm. the the Zen textbook. That's to me a very important uh, little figure for what's going on. You know, be- become the book, mm-hmm. the book man. Um, Clevenger doesn't fit with that. And, uh, he comes at the end. There's only one, one place for him to, to come at the end. The, the doctor, the priest, I think his name's Tom Thumb or something like this. The, the other. Right. Yeah. I do remember that name. Yeah. There's a lot of grotesques that, that come and go, uh, grotesque in the sense of, um, Relatable, believable, but also exaggerated to the point of uh, you have to suspend disbelief a little bit. Yeah, and you do, you know, I wonder if we're getting prototypes for these kind of the cult murders and the and the names. I I I don't want to look you know ahead at at every point with Americana, but it does seem as though he's working out. Um, uh, an interest in, um, in a, in a kind of type, a dead ender type, um, that, you know, it, it, interestingly, I think in Americana, there is this attempt at character characterization Mm -hmm. in a way that some of the, you know, the later books are, are more about the, well, what what am I saying? I remember more about the, uh, the, the type or, uh, figure of, of dead ender. I just think, you know, that when I read, uh, who is it? The, at the, um, college is doing a master's thesis on, on swap on the swastika that he's 
sort of figuring out yeah the eventual his interest in Hitler studies is it El- Eldred or yeah uh, I think that's right that he yeah. did a master's thesis on who is yeah definitely a villainous uh, figure here who the uh, God brands uh, sort of commander right yeah he's the one who brings up the the God save game God right. save God and that's a that's a Delillo moment. Yeah. That's a yeah. trademark DeLillo TM moment. Most definitely. Yeah, because it's circular language that is, uh, it's 281. I don't know if we want to uh, go there, but right, it, it's a it's circular language that has, um, it subverts its own meaning, right? Because you, you say God save um, as a one word, um, you know, um, as a single word about things that are dead. And that's one thing. <laughs> and that- unsavable. That you killed, <laughs> like uh, all the children you bombed, and, and so on, and then God, God Himself or God itself is the ultimate object of that. The self-erasing word it anticipates mm. end zone very nicely. But that's one thing I think one Delillo trademark uh, throughout all of his books that he does so well is the speech act, making making the the pronunciation, the enunciation of the word is an action. Right that impacts not only the word and how that structures the shared reality of that scene. Yeah. But that action impacts the, the scene itself. Yeah. It's the, the word is weaved into the, the scene that is a weaving of words. Yeah. That seems to be the, the kind of great, well, it's a, you're sort of describing what, slogans and rituals and chants do the ad man work right? yeah yeah the, the great advertise i mean another way of uh of putting it it's it's not exactly parallel but preempting the truth um, yeah or or i mean when we talk about enzo it's it's um gary harkness says you know i didn't you know i thought it was so sinister or it was my first encounter with how words can escape their meaning um, and that seems to be what you know I, you're getting at here, and what God Save God is is evoking too. That um, somehow uh, save has been turned on itself, um, uh, inverted, uh, upset. You know, in that use of it um, here for the exact opposite purpose, um, and, and all these things are you know it's how how language and violence interact. Mm-hmm. Um, how language justifies violence, how language is silenced in, in favor of violence. Um, that's the, that's a pretty big theme for Mr. DeLillo. <laughs> and to me, that, that tactility, that, uh, that agency of language is, is parallel to David Bell fetishizing the very gelatin of, of the film stock, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Stroking, stroking the camera, getting into the, the nuts and bolts of it, that that physicality of it. I mean, the, the curious part is that language is, you know, ephemeral at best. You can see it if it's printed, but you can hear it if it's spoken. But um, you know, how close how close can you get? It's always a forefront thought of Delillo. How close can you get to the very material? That he's working with, with his typewriter, you can get very close to the <laughs> hammer striking the page. His manual typewriter that he insists on working with long past 1970 when he's composing this book. 
That's right. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Um, why why should people read Americana <laughs> in in this uh, as this, if we have said enough about that subject? Oh, why should they read it now? My why, gosh, why should yeah. a why should a newcomer to DeLillo read Americana? Yeah, it's um, well, it, it I mean, it poses the question too of of um, when uh, you might read Americana. We you know, I'd, it it would seem. Um, I think of it as a, as a sort of, this is maybe to work up to an answer to the question. It's a sort of insider's DeLillo book. You know, the real DeLillo fan will regard this as a, a, a great book. And, you know, and of course there are plenty of readers um, who have white noise, maybe Libra um, uh, and so on as, as their um, go-to DeLillo books. Um, and this one. Yeah. Entry point. Yeah. Um, this is a deeper cut. Yeah, it's a, it's a deeper cut. Um, gosh, I mean, I think the 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 you know he came upon this critique of his country <laughs> early and built from it in ways we've been suggesting. And I don't think this kind of sense. I'm struck by, you know, I hadn't I've read this book several times and it, I had never. Um, really gotten, I don't think, um, what he summarizes as patriotism as incest, um, that and baseless patriotism as love for mother country. My God, I mean, how this is uh, a, a really apt description, I think, of the kind of patriotism, alleged, you know, alleged patriotism you see playing out, especially in right wing politics uh, nowadays, um, that. Thankfully, there isn't a war on to uh, critique, you know, with direct U.S. involvement. But there's there's plenty of energy being expended in this um, perverse direction, I think, by so many uh, in America. And what what the book, I think, reading it 50 years later, 52 years later, suggests is that this is somehow baked in to the to the uh, the problems of the country, the kind of. Well, baked into the almost uh, the arrangement of, of the, you know, uh, into the space uh, itself, that somehow this big landscape with certainly lots of uh, population centers, but the kind of mythos of the individual on the, the road trip, you know, kind of taking on the, the country, that seems unpacked and dissected here in a way that's well, to go back to my adjective, uh, productive, uh, still, uh, in an ongoing ways. Um, and it, you know, and the other thing I'll say, the last thing I might say about this is that, um, I mean, definitely there are, I would put America, Americana. And, uh, the, the, now it's your turn. <laughs> now it's my turn to make the, make the mistake. Uh, I put it in his top two or three funniest books, uh, I would have to say. No doubt. Because he, you know, even there, there's something stunted about some of these kind of middle, you know, Great Jones Street, I think, has quite a bit of humor to it. But th there's just nothing, the matching of voice, ambition, epic scope, uh, and, uh, and humor, you know, that comes across in David Bell. I don't think DeLillo really hits that um, 
Well, almost anywhere else. I would put, I would say David Bell is a, a much funnier narrator than, 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 um, Jack Gladney, uh, say in white noise. And, and that's, uh, you know, for a writer who in some ways you could see him as being, having almost abandoned that comic novel, mm-hmm. uh, impulse and, mm-hmm. um, uh, that you see that it's all there, you know, right at the beginning and, um, um, such dark laughter. <laughs> it is dark laughter. There's a lot uh, of black humor as, in this. As, as well, in a way that, yeah, I, I said, you know, top couple funny books, but wow, I, I can't think of a, a place where, um, he really, uh, kind of does this better, um, in a way. Um, but we, we can, you know, go into, we don't need, we don't need to rank, uh, no, in, in, no. Any, in any sense. No, you know, we, no. we love them all. <laughs> we love them all. I mean, we might say equally, there are no stinkers in this, uh, in this run of, uh, 17 books, uh, 17 novels, at least. They all have their on. place. Yeah. And, uh, Americana certainly has its place. I feel like the, the role of this emerging technology of the camera that also is a baked in trait of, Mm. uh, of, of our society that, uh, there's always a new thing coming that revolutionizes how we perceive the world and how we interact with each other. One of the great scenes in this book, in my opinion, uh, where David Bell is shooting out of the car, I think it is. And the camera is not on mm-hmm. and all his, uh, his subjects are they're, they're They change their behavior. Yeah. This. He's in on the joke. This is one of David Bell's perversities, right? But well, he imagines that they will, their existence will be confirmed in the, in the far future. If there were absolutely camera, so, that's what they believe. So not even the technology, but the, the empty sign of the technology, the dead camera, the off, the off camera yeah. is enough yeah. to change behavior, to change psychology. Uh, I feel like you don't have to look very far, try very hard to see that mechanism very much alive and well in in our society yeah. today. Well, I was, <laughs> so. I was mentioning to you, right, that, that David Foster Wallace and the Unibus Plurum, among other things, you know, he, I think he's very much inspired just in that essay. He's inspired in a lot of other works as well, I think especially Infinite Jest, by the Americana. But one of the things he writes about that I, I think could be based in, in that scene you're talking about is the fact that Every everybody reacts to being on camera in, in the same way. It's with a woo and a raising of arms and a kind of excitement and a sort of exaggeration of mm-hmm. being that is somehow called forth. But it's as though every camera is being on the jumbotron. So, oh, uh, you know, when we uh, you're the star, it. and and it, and I think Wallace would. I don't know if we would. He specifically says, but it's. Most people are not actors, are not able to, as he puts it, you know, in, in, we have this paradoxical idea of act natural, right. you know, uh, contradictory thing. And that's, you know, DeLillo is onto that uh, as well. Absolutely. In the sense that he is, um, um, that the camera not only is, you know, can be likened to a living creature, but it, that it is validating. It, it validates existence. Uh, 
because of, well, it's not simply a, a documentary or archival effect that it would seem to have a very, very few people. I mean, how many millions of photos have been taken today or uh, videos taken today that won't be <laughs> looked at for, I mean, I know that's true of so many of the photos or videos uh, I take, but it is the, it's the um, phenomenon of being on camera that the action, the, the DeLillo. And I think that all the people he's inspired are, able to analyze absolutely you know, this deep level as the kind of pores, right. That he talks about, um, kind of seeping into on Burt Lancaster's face. Of course that, that it's the film one merges with, well, this is to get into the difference between being a film spectator and being on camera, I guess, but that there is a kind of merger with the image that the film, that film always calls for, especially in combination with just the myth of cinema like the myth making of America through, through cinema. Um, in combination, there's just the, the, the fascination fetishization of what seems like surveillance. That seems like this omniscient eye that is recording and watching. David Bell is always thinking about, where his image is going. He's, he's, well, first of all, he's obsessed with his own image. Uh, but he also has a, I guess it's ambiguous, but it's, it's kind of a troubled, troubled obsession with, with where his image is going. And if the, where his image is going is actually where he is. (laughs) If there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a strange alienation that David Bell also maintains. He, he, he totally celebrates the, the power of the image and the life-giving aspect. The heat of the image. The heat of the image. Yeah. But I feel like he's also aware, though not critical, of, uh, of the, the alienation that can also come from that. It takes you from yourself so that you can look back in the future. <laughs> On, uh, look back at people playing you. As well, right? Exactly. Uh, playing your parents, playing uh, your your sister, um, and, and so on. Yeah, right? I mean, yes. part of the reading experience, right? It, that still often confounds me is is kind of figuring out who's speaking, you know, who's really speaking in quotes. I guess you'd say um, because uh, Mary is it Mortadella? Arundella. Arundella. <laughs> I, I must have food on the mind. Or something. Yeah. I said Mortadella. Uh, the guy in the rackets, right? Who is the um, well, maybe a kind of long forerunner of uh, of Underworld. There. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I totally got that. David Bell calling his own apartment from wherever the hell he is, and just thinking of him, his own phone ringing. Uh, in his apartment as if he can be two places mm. at once to me is, uh, is, um, just, just a pregnant image for the whole complex of, of this book and what, what David Bell seems to be confronting again. If only you can duplicate yourself so that you can finally merge in some kind of holy, mm. holy union. Unfortunately, it's never quite possible. If only you could capture yourself and just say, I'm safe. But it's, it's not quite like that. That's the nature of diminishing existence. Diminishing returns, I suppose. <laughs>